Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. This week, the theme is time. We'll be winding the clocks back 12.8 billion years as researchers give us a glance at one of the universe's oldest stars, or at least one of the ones that first formed when the universe was very, very young, just 800 million years after the Big Bang. We'll also be jumping aboard Venus Express to take a look at what could be in store for the Earth in future. Venus has a runaway greenhouse effect, and it could give us some clues as to what's coming to us here on Earth. And in terms of more contemporary time, the body clock. We'll be looking at the human body clock, the animal body clock, and also the plant and bacterial body clock because everything has a body clock it's set by sunlight how does it actually work how does it get you up in the morning and how does it cause jet lag insomnia and other problems related there too so tonight very much the science of sleep if you have any questions related to that 08459 25 2000 is our phone number or you can email me chris at nakedscientist.com hello i am chris smith here to present tonight's program with me is dotty cat hello cat hello i'm intrigued to hear about the world's oldest star i think it's about 12.8 billion years old it's probably rod stewart isn't it chris I was going to say Tina Turner. But, <laughs> hmm, close. It's, it's pretty close. Um, we'll be hearing about that. I'll also be bringing you news that scientists have found that even if you have a hands-free mobile phone, uh, it's still uh, not enough to, to protect your brain from breaking in time. Um, so we'll be talking about that later. Protecting your brain from breaking in Protecting time. your brain. I don't know what I'm talking about. It's too early in the evening. Um, <laughs> but you, you still can't concentrate properly, even if you've got a hands-free mobile phone when you're driving. And uh, we want your questions. Um, get phoning in. Uh, 08459 25 2000. Email us, chris at nakedscientist.com. Your questions about time, about the body clock, about plants, um, how they sense time. And also, if you've got any general questions about science, technology, medicine, get calling in now, 08459 25 2000. All our callers can have a go at the quiz, Science Fact or Science Fiction. And up for grabs tonight, it's the last one, the Encyclopedia Britannica on DVD. How good is that? Get phoning in now. 08459-252000. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Well, this week there was that story where this woman was driving along in her car, putting her makeup on. Did everyone see that? Um, absolutely bonkers, not recommended at all. But many people now think that if you have a hands-free mobile phone, it's all right. You know, you're not doing anything with your hands. You must be able to break in time. But now some scientists at the University of California have been studying people's um, refractory period. It's what it's called. It's how long, much longer it takes you to do something if you're not really focusing on the task in hand. And they studied 40 people in this sort of car simulator and gave them tasks that were the equivalent of having to use a hands-free mobile phone. So not using your hands but having to respond respond to something and they found that the people who were doing this braked 174 milliseconds slower um, than people who weren't doing anything else now that doesn't sound like much but in fact if you're driving in a car at 65 miles an hour what is that at least 10 meters that time difference is 16 feet it's five meters and that could make uh, at that kind of speed that could make a real difference well the difference between life and death potentially absolutely so uh, as well as not putting your makeup on (laughs) Uh, girls out there. Also, 
it's probably best not to be talking on a mobile phone at all um, if the scientific evidence is anything to go by. Yeah, so no shaving either, guys. <laughs> I've seen some people do that with an electric shaver. Uh, I've got an email here from Doug Guiding, uh, Gilding, sorry, who uh, listened to us in Worcestershire, and he says, Chris and the other Naked Scientists, I'm just dropping you a quick note to congratulate you on a fantastic show. I'm slowly working my way through your back catalogue via the podcast, usually when I'm in my car. Uh, the show is a welcome relief from all the poor excuses for musical entertainment these days and also a very good way of broadening the mind and keeping abreast of current science and changes in scientific technology. Who'd have believed a universe within a black hole? The other reason for this email is to add my name to the list of those requesting another series. Well, we haven't finished this one yet, Doug, so uh, hopefully uh, we'll be here for a little while yet. He says, uh, I, I, hopefully you could expand your broadcast range because then I could pick you up on our local radio here in Worcestershire. But a great show. Keep it up. Yeah, we've also got, um, we love getting emails from people all over the world. We've actually got someone from Buckingham in the UK. Brilliant. So the UK listeners are listening to us. And this is from Lisa O'Donoghue, who listens to us while she's walking the dog. Um, must be a very educated dog as well. And she says it's really refreshing to hear about things that um, she and her husband feel the TV news should be broadcasting, but aren't. She's always surprised by our scientific discoveries that we talk about, because people don't generally hear about them. And she's off to go and have a look at the Wiggly Wigglers website as well, so obviously into uh, composting. And she says, where's the dog's lead? She's off to listen to some more of our podcasts while walking the dog. Thanks, Lisa. Dr Chris and Dr Cow, we're here as the Naked Scientists. If you'd like to ask us any questions about anything scientific, we're talking time this evening. More on that in just a second. 08459 25 2000 is the phone number, or email me chris at nakedscientist.com. Now, let's wind the clock back almost 13 billion years. And if we do that, you'll come to a time when the universe is only about 800 million years old. With the help of SWIFT, and that's a satellite that's been designed to pinpoint the origins of things called GRBs, that stands for gamma-ray bursts. Those are intense flashes of energy produced during the death throes of a star. Researchers in America and Japan have pinpointed what's currently the earliest and most distant star ever seen. And uh, here with the story is the University of North Carolina's Dan Reichart. We have discovered the most distant explosion yet known in the universe, and it's important because it's a proof of concept. It shows that these events are actually out there and that we can use them as probes of the early universe if we're faster in the future. So how far back have you been able to wind the clock? This burst, this gamma ray burst, occurred 12.8 billion years ago. So the universe is 13.7 billion years old, so about when the universe was about 6% its current age. So what does this actually tell us about what was going on in that time when the universe was uh, really very young? Well, gamma ray bursts have the potential to tell us a lot about the early universe. Um, we can use them to figure out at what rate stars were forming at very early times when the first stars occurred, when everything other than hydrogen and helium was made. For example, the things that we're made of were made in the bellies of these stars. And also the universe reionized itself at some early time. Gamma ray bursts can be used to probe all of these things. So what produced the gamma ray burst that you were observing on this occasion? This is a long-duration gamma-ray burst, which means the progenitor is most likely a massive star, maybe about 30 times the mass of our sun, that has reached the end of its lifetime, and its core collapsed and formed a black hole. And as the rest of the material was falling into the black hole, it produced a common phenomena in astrophysics. These are called jets, beamed emission coming away from the black hole, kind of a death cry of the massive star. And this is what we saw. How did you spot it? It's a couple-step process. The gamma-ray burst was first identified in gamma rays, a really high-energy form of light, by a NASA satellite called SWIFT. Gamma rays don't penetrate the atmosphere, so we rely upon these satellites to localize the gamma-ray burst in the sky. Those coordinates were then transmitted down to Earth very quickly, and a few hours later, 
my team used a telescope called SOAR, the Southern Observatory for Astrophysical Research in the Chilean Andes. And we imaged it with SOAR in the infrared and um, with a smaller array of telescopes called PROMPT at visible wavelengths, light that the human eye can see. And by comparing those two different types of light, we were able to peg the distance. Dan Reichardt from the University of North Carolina. Now, another group of researchers that also studied this gamma-ray burst included Nobuyaki Kawai from the Tokyo Institute of Technology. By analysing the so-called afterglow of the burst, he and his colleagues have been able to determine the composition of the star that died. We found the trace of silicon, sulphur, carbon and oxygen. And one possibility is that these elements are produced in the star that caused the explosion and scattered around the star before it made this huge explosion. So what do you think the chief implications of these findings are? For one thing, we have demonstrated that the gamma-ray burst is a powerful tool to prove that the star existed in such early time of the history of the universe. So finding the gamma-ray burst at time means that there indeed was such massive star in the history of the universe. And secondly, by measuring the spectrum of the burst, we find that most of the hydrogen in the universe was ionized. That means that the elements were already radiated by some starlight. So at that time, there were already stars that were shining. Tokyo Institute of Technology's Nobuyaki Kawai describing how his observations are helping to shed light on the early universe. But what's the next step in pushing back the frontier yet further? Dan Reichardt again. In the future, we hope to respond to these events more quickly. Uh, a number of groups around the planet, including my group at UNC Chapel Hill, are building robotic telescopes. So in the future, when the satellites find these gamma-ray bursts and transmit the coordinates down to Earth, the telescopes will respond automatically, imaging in both infrared and visible light, and by comparing that, figuring out the distances much more quickly, giving us time to train large telescopes on these events before they fade away. Do you think the star that you saw was actually one of the universe's first stars, or was it already a second-generation star by that time? I think we're most likely looking at a second-generation star. The first-generation stars, no one really knows when they occurred, but it's almost certainly at a greater distance farther back in time than this. Do you think they're spotable? It's a subject of debate. I certainly hope they are. There's Dan Reichardt from the University of North Carolina and Nobuyaki Kawaii from the Tokyo Institute of Technology on the trail this week uh, with a paper in Nature of the world's oldest star, if you can call it the world's oldest star. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. And it is Dr. Chris and Dr. Kat here with you as the Naked Scientists. If you'd like to ask us any questions, 08459 25 2000, phone lines are open, or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. Don't forget, coming up, we're going to be talking about the body clock, how it is that it sends you to sleep at the right time, how it wakes you up at the right time, and what's going on when you end up with insomnia. And also, it's not just humans and animals that have body clocks, plants do too. And Alex Webb from Cambridge University's Department of Plant Sciences is here in the studio and he's going to be talking to us about that very, very shortly. Right, here we go now with the quick question from New Jersey. It's Phoebe in New Jersey in the US and she says, when you get a blister, what is the liquid that fills it up and is it pus? P.S. Thank you for answering my sister's question recently about internal bleeds. She said it really helped and we both love the show. Well, Phoebe, the answer is when someone rubs you up the wrong way, like Kat does to me on a regular basis... Uh, what happens is that the area that gets the abrasion or the damage gets injured and the injury causes cells to burst or puncture 
And when cells do that, they spill out their contents, and the contents of cells, when they get damaged, is quite inflammatory. In other words, it causes swelling. And the reason it causes swelling is because it causes blood vessels that supply the damaged area to open up or dilate. And it also secretes substances which cause blood vessels to become leaky. And when they do that, not only do you get more blood flowing into an area, which is why it goes red and becomes hot, it also, because of that leakiness, leaches out some of the proteins and other substances that are contained inside the blood vessels and they accumulate in the damaged area. The idea, of course, is that if they build up in the surface of the skin, they provide a cushion to the damaged tissue to help it to recover underneath. So that's the substance that's in a blister. Though blisters are normally a sterile site, and actually if you can avoid popping them, it's better to do so, because all the time that they've got a nice, secure bubble on the surface, they're not actually infected with anything, so you shouldn't actually succumb to any kind of infections. A slightly different thing, or a slightly different phenomenon to a blister, is something called a vesicle. And if you've ever had chickenpox, you'll know all about it. These are tiny blisters caused by the chickenpox virus growing in the skin and they're absolutely crammed with that virus. So if you take a little bit of that fluid, there are thousands and thousands of chickenpox virus particles in there. And that's also true if you've got shingles. So that's a slightly different ph- phenomenon. That's actually injury to the tissue caused by a localised infection. How does that differ from pus? A pus is bacteria growing in a inside a wound, isn't it, Chris? That's why pus is all smelly rather than blisters, which don't really smell. Pus is actually dead cells, that's right. So some of them will be dead bacteria, but a lot of them will be your white blood cells, kind of cells called polymorphonuclear neutrophils, PMN cells, which move into the site of, uh, of an injury or a site of infection to help clean up the debris. And the cells ingest the debris and they release lots of enzymes that help to break it down and they essentially turn it into gunk, which is the breakdown products of the things that have been knocking around in the injury site. So pus is actually dead cells and other debris but if you look at a blister usually it's clear fluid and, and that's just stuff that's leached out of your blood vessels it's a bit like plasma yeah so don't pop your blisters um but you can squeeze your spots is that the medical advice <laughs> actually you're not supposed to squeeze spots because the argument is if you squeeze a zit uh, half the time it does come out the right way and you get a nice satisfying pop uh, and a nice yellow splat on the mirror and i think jasper carrot defined a good zit as one that you could hit the mirror with from 30 feet away but uh, often also the infection gets driven deeper into the pore and this means it can spread sideways into the skin and then you get not just one spot but you get the equivalent of about 15 combined spots all in one place and it's very very painful and not very nice right science of spots um anyway this week we've got another podcast coming up from science update this is produced for us by the AAAS in america and chelsea wald and bob hershon have been looking at autism a topic that's also going to be covered this year at science week in cambridge by professor simon baron cohen and they're also going to be looking at the science and importance of dirt this week for the naked scientists we'll be finding out why dirt might be a medical gold mine But first, new research on autism. It's making some people ask the controversial question, what if autism isn't a disease at all? Exactly. You know, you might remember in the movie Rain Man, Dustin Hoffman's character is an autistic genius. But in reality, most autistic people are labeled mentally retarded, even if some of them can perform quick mental arithmetic or other similar feats. Now, a Canadian team has shown that the IQ test, usually used for autistic people, may be underestimating their intelligence by up to 30 percentile points for highly functioning autistics. Cognitive neuroscientist Laurent Montreux of the University of Montreal says this is a sign that autistic brains aren't diseased, they're just different. So a difference that has not to be cured and that should not be relevant in determining the social status of a person. Of course, this is extraordinarily subversive, but when you think deeply on it, it's extremely bright. 
In fact, he employs an autistic person in his lab, and he says that she readily makes connections that people with typical brains can't. He even claims that the productivity of his lab has doubled since she started working there. I can imagine that's going to make people think twice, and our next story will make people look twice at the dirt beneath their feet. More and more disease-causing germs are becoming resistant to antibiotics. To learn more about the problem, some scientists literally did some digging. That's right, Chelsea. Dirt-dwelling bacteria may actually hold the key to understanding antibiotic-resistant germs. That's according to biochemist Jerry Wright, who's at McMaster University in Canada. He explains that soil bacteria constantly fight each other with natural antibiotics, many of which have led to life-saving drugs. But they also have to defend themselves. So he and his colleagues tested nearly 500 strains of soil bacteria for resistance to 21 different antibiotics. And we found that on average, these organisms are resistant to between six and, and eight different antibiotics. Sometimes as many as 15 out of the 20, 21 that we studied. So what we've done is is really uncovered a fairly dense and unanticipated level of of drug resistance out there in the environment that, that pre-exists in, in the organisms that not only produce drugs but also、uh, live nearby them. He says the resistance was often similar or identical to the kind seen in medical clinics. Further study could reveal how these resistances develop and even warn of possible troubles ahead. Well, cheers, Chelsea and Bob. That's really fascinating. If you want to find out more about Chelsea and Bob's podcasts, then go to www.scienceupdate.com and have a nose around there. And、uh, if you've got questions for us, get phoning in now: oh eight four five nine twenty five two thousand. What do you think about body clocks?、Um, what do you think about plants coming out earlier in the year? Have you noticed anything?、Um, can you sleep? Get phoning in now: oh eight four five nine twenty five two thousand. Is the Naked Scientists, which is Dr. Chris, that's me, and Dr. Cat. We're here with you until seven, and we are talking this evening about the science of time. And in the next five weeks, the、uh, podcast pick will be coming straight from Mission Control of the European Space Operations Centre in Darmstadt, in Germany, where they're preparing to launch Venus Express. Next month, a European spacecraft arrives at Venus, aiming to unlock secrets of the planet's runaway greenhouse effect and search for active volcanoes, making Venus Express one of the most exciting planetary science missions ever launched. Over the next five weeks, we'll report on the progress of this live space voyage right from Mission Control at ESA, the European Space Agency. We'll speak with engineers and scientists from various ESA establishments and look at the high-tech teamwork and sophisticated engineering that underpin this marvelous adventure. Venus Express was launched by ESA on November 9th, 2005. Venus, our nearest planetary neighbor, has fascinated mankind from the earliest times. Named after the Roman goddess of love and beauty, Venus was first visited by Russian and American space probes in the 1960s. Venus was found to be a Stygian world, with the surface invisible behind a thick atmosphere of noxious gases. The surface pressure is a crushing 90 times greater than Earth's, and the temperature runs over 450 degrees Celsius, hot enough to melt lead. As sunlight heats Venus, the surface radiates infrared energy that is kept from escaping by the dense carbon dioxide atmosphere. Studying this vicious greenhouse effect will help scientists better understand planetary systems in general, including the Earth's climate. In fact, Venus is very similar to Earth in size, mass, and distance from the Sun. So conditions on the planet may once have been similar to those on Earth. The 1,270-kilogram Venus Express has one main engine and two sets of four thrusters, and is about as big as a mini smart car. 
The spacecraft carries seven scientific instruments, including a magnetometer, spectrometers to study the atmosphere and surface, and the VMC, or Venus Monitoring Camera. Little Venus Express is a true pioneer, and ESA is looking forward to a number of scientific firsts. Among these, the mission will be the first to examine the composition of the lower atmosphere and the first to measure, from orbit, global surface temperatures. Venus Express will also provide the first coherent study of atmospheric temperatures and dynamics at altitudes up to about 200 kilometers. Scientists hope to apply what they learn to the evolution of other planets, including Earth. Dr. Hakan Zvedem is lead project scientist for Venus Express at the European Space Agency's Research and Technology Center in Noordwijk, the Netherlands. One thing that we may be able to, to learn from this is to see if there is active volcanism on the planet. And, and that would really be a, a major discovery if we can demonstrate that still is the case. There are reasons to believe that there still should be active volcanism on the surface, but nobody has ever observed that yet. In addition to the possibility of active volcanism today, scientists hope to shed light on the mysteries of planet-wide volcanic activity 500 million years ago and on what causes Venus's hurricane-force winds and runaway greenhouse effect. Scientists are passionate about returning to one of the solar system's hottest and most hellish planets more than a decade after the last robotic visit, and Venus Express is primed to make many new discoveries during its 500 Earth Day mission. But first, it has to get there. Join us next for part two of this special podcast series when we investigate how Venus Express's remarkable five-month trajectory was calculated based on fundamental physics first discovered by Newton and Kepler. Daniel Skuka reporting there from the European Space Operations Centre in Darmstadt, Germany, from the European Space Agency, and taking a look really at what Venus can tell us about what might be in, in the future for us here on Earth, because Venus has a runaway greenhouse effect, and maybe we're heading the same way. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Well, we've already had people calling us in. If you want to call in now, 08459 25 2000. Tonight we're answering questions about the body clock um, and about time in general. But also we've had Terry from East London who's called in and he says he'd like to know if there is any more research going on involving stem cells or have there been any recent developments. I think this is following on from the announcement about um, Hu Suk Wang in Korea whose human cloned stem cells turned out to be a complete fabrication. What do you know, Chris? Well, having said that, though, uh, to his credit, there was an official announcement this week that Snuppy the dog that he claimed to have cloned really was a clone because uh, the journal Nature in which that uh, piece of research was published was so worried about the results even though uh, a Korean um, investigation proved that Snuppy really was what he claimed to be uh, they commissioned their own independent trial and they've announced this week that actually Snuppy is for real and he really did clone the dog but in terms of stem cell therapies um, Terry uh, there are some ongoing but not necessarily in humans the most recent positive or success story was actually done in racehorses it's a guy called Roger Smith who's at the Royal Veterinary College here in the UK and what he was doing was extracting bone marrow stem cells from the sternum, the breastbone of racehorses and using it to treat horses that had had an injury to a tendon and actually pulled tendons are a very common problem for racehorses. It often actually accounts for many of the reasons why horses get retired, put out to stud or taken off the track and, and unfortunately shot sometimes. The problem is um, these are very difficult injuries to treat. Tendons are obviously very, very strong and when they break you have to nurse them back to health very, very gently so a horse can be out of action for, for perhaps 18 months. So what these guys have done is to collect these bone marrow stem cells and then inject the stem cells into the injured tendon and what they found is that versus 50% of 
30% of horses that recover the traditional way, 80% of horses that they treated this way, and and in fact they treated 80 horses, made a full recovery. And they did that within 12 months, which is actually 50% faster than the animals that were treated the conventional way with sort of gentle exercise and rest and recuperation. They took over 18 months to make a recovery. So it does sound like there is some hope for stem cell therapy, but at the moment we're not seeing major advances in the human particular area. Yeah, I think you have to be selective. There is all sorts of stem cell research going on um, all over the place, but uh, maybe not human cloning of stem cells at the moment. Now, a regular feature here on The Naked Scientist, and incidentally, if you'd like to give us a call, because we will be switching over to body clocks pretty soon, 08459252000 or chris at nakedscientist.com if you want to drop me an email. Uh, the regular feature we often have here is the kitchen science segment, and this is where we give you an opportunity to try something exciting at home. And uh, Derek is this week uh, with Claudia F. Stathew, and they're working out how to separate things. Derek. Hello, and welcome to The Naked Scientist Laboratory once again, where we are on the frontier of science this evening and we'll be doing some science that you can do in your kitchen but which is not fully understood even by the biggest brains one of whom is here with me um, and we'll meet him in a moment it's pretty amazing though so listen out for what to do and we are going to do the whole experiment right now in one go so you can hear just how remarkable it really is so now then with me uh, the man who has come up with this experiment uh, professor herbert huppert of cambridge university no less so thank you very much what is it we're doing this evening then What we're going to do is a rather fundamental experiment using grains and showing some of the interesting but surprising aspects that granular motion can uh, show. And you can do this with any grains, many of which you see in your kitchen. Okay, and we're going to hear exactly how to do that in a moment. But also, a helper is with us too. Wonderful helper, thank you very much for coming down. Could you give us your name and age, please? Um, I'm Claudia, I'm 13. Excellent. And you've come here to do some great science, but what do you like about science generally then? The fact that it's ever-changing, and though though you may learn one thing, you may find out a few years later it's completely wrong. Okay. So then, Herbert, what are we going to do? Well, I have here a uh, little packet that has some couscous and some uh, salt. Now, I've got a little plastic packet, but it could be a a paper bag or anything that will suitably uh, take, say, a tablespoon of couscous and two or three tablespoons of salt. And I'm going to give it to Chloe and I'm going to have her mix them. Okay, and of course the important thing here is that it's just got to be two types of grain, preferably a different colour so that you can see the difference between them. So how are you doing there, Claudia? What's it looking like? Um, Okay, it's a bit, it's more dispersed than it was. Yeah, okay then. Now then, what next? Now the point is, Claudia, we want to talk about how to unmix these uh, grains. So how do you think we could unmix them? How could we separate them out again? Could could you like flatten the surface and let the salt fall through to the bottom? Well, do the experiment and let us know. Um, the salt goes to come through to the bottom, but I don't know how I get it out. Yeah, and there's still kind of some at the top as yeah. well, isn't there? So that's tricky. But we do have a way of unmixing, do we not? Uh, yes, uh, we do have a way to unmix them. That's really quite uh, surprising. We can mix liquids, sometimes with considerable difficulty, like mixing paints, but unmixing them is enormously difficult, if not impossible. But for grains... It's not too difficult to unmix uh, grains, and that's what we're going to do uh, now. Okay, yes, so what we've got here is a CD case which has had everything taken out of it. We've taken out the album notes, the CD itself. We've taken out the, uh, the little bit of plastic that the CD clips into. You'll find that you can remove that from most proper CD cases. And so all you're left with is a hollow, transparent box. And uh, really that box consists of two parallel pieces of transparent plastic. 
Now then, when you've got this CD case, what you need to do is put it upright vertically and then you'll be pouring the grain mixture into that space between the front and the back. Now you'll find that the opening through which you can pour this is at the side of the CD where the hinge normally is. So you'll need to put that side at the top uh, with it standing vertically upright. And uh, you can normally access that opening quite easily with a funnel if you pour the grains through a funnel or perhaps if you use a piece of paper which has been folded into a V shape that they can pour in quite easily there. But the important thing is though that you need to pour the grains in not in the middle but at the left or right hand side. So they've got to be poured in at the top left or top right corner of the whole setup and then of course we will see a lovely result so anyway herbert let's uh, let's ask claudia to do some pouring yeah that sounds fun claudia are you up to it this is an experiment so you'll now know what uh, happens uh still going through the funnel okay all and also see tell us what you see down below all the couscouses falling to the bottom and the salts on top okay and now what do you <laughs> see as well what's happened it's like a triangle it's forming layers <laughs> so yeah we've got basically a layer of couscous at the bottom and then a big triangle of salt, and then kind of alternating layers, haven't we? What do you think? What does that look like to you? Like a hillside that you see in geography, with all the different layers of stuff. Yeah, OK. So, I mean, what do you think? Have we succeeded? Well, I don't know. Can you get the couscous out? Yeah, I mean, what do you think? Essentially, we seem to have separated them within this apparatus. We've got layers of couscous and layers of salt. I mean, can we then basically get these out of there so that we could actually have just couscous or just salt? Well, now, of course, there's the difficulty that these uh, sheets are rather closely spaced, but if we had a thin spoon and we could lift out the couscous and put the couscous on one side, and then there would be this sloping layer of just uh, salt. And so we'd take uh, the salt and we'd put it to another side. You try and do that with paint to get the uh, green and the uh, white to uh, separate like that. Pretty difficult, I think. So what do you think about that, Claudia? I mean, does that surprise you? Yeah, I, I didn't think it would work like that. Okay then, so there we go, we've managed to unmix. The question is, of course, what is happening here? Why is it happening? Well, this is uh, one of the areas of science that uh, Claudia mentioned right at the beginning. We don't quite know. There are some ideas and some theories, and without a doubt the different frictional effects of the couscous, as the couscous rubs against uh, neighbouring couscous and the salt rubs against neighbouring salt, and that friction separates the two different grains as it flows down the hill, as Claudia called it. So there you go. You can do this in your own kitchen with uh, a CD case and a funnel and a mixture of grains. And yet, uh, we here in the Naked Scientist Laboratory, many scientists down the world, are still somewhat scratching their heads to, as to exactly what's going on. So that's great. So that's all from the Naked Scientist Laboratory. We will, of course, be back next time. So uh, do come and join us then for more science that you can do at home, hopefully. Otherwise, goodbye. Well, thanks, Derek. And Derek was there with Professor Herbert Huppert from Cambridge University and Claudia Astathieu. And um, next week, they're going to be back in Cambridge finding the fastest way to get drink out of a bottle. An alcoholic one? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't say here. Um, but you're listening to The Naked Scientists. Um, if you've got any calls for us, get phoning in now, 08459 25 And if you've nosed around on our Naked Scientists website, nakedscientists.com, you'll have seen some of our science articles. Now... Are you a budding science writer? Um, because this week, Cancer Research UK has launched a fantastic new science writing competition for our younger listeners in the UK. That's between 11 and 18 years old. And I'm sorry to our foreign listeners, it's only available in the UK. And here's Julie Sharp from Cancer Research UK to explain what this competition is all about. Well, we wanted to celebrate National Science Week in some way, so we're launching a competition. It's called The Science of Tomorrow, um, and it's a writing competition. We want young people to imagine the 
the science of the future. Think about the year 2056, 50 years time from now, what will scientists be doing? What medical problems will they be trying to solve? What will their labs look like? That sounds fantastic. Who can enter this competition? It's open to 11 to 18-year-olds, and within that we're going to have two different age categories. What can people win? There's got to be an incentive. Oh, that's right, and we've got tickets from the Science Museum. They've kindly donated tickets for their forthcoming exhibition called um, Pixar 20 Years of Animation. Um, And we've also got some science books for the regional winners. Who's going to be judging it? Who have we got to impress? We've got a great panel lined up. We've got Zoe Salmon, the Blue Peter presenter. We've got Tim Radford, the former Guardian science editor. We've got our own chief executive, Alex Markham. And we've got Fran Bolkwell, who's a Cancer Research UK scientist and a well-respected writer and um, communicator. So if any of our young listeners want to enter, what should they do? Where can they find out more? Well, there are going to be more details on our website, and that's www.scienceoftomorrow.org.uk. They can enter online, or we're also accepting postal entries. Cheers, Julie. So if you're aged between 11 and 18 years old and you're in the UK, go and have a look at www.scienceoftomorrow.org.uk. And the competition closes on the 7th of April, so you'd better get writing in quickly. It's Dr Chris and Dr Kat. We're here as the Naked Scientist tonight. And if you would like to ask us a question, especially about the body clock, because we're ticking over to uh, looking at how actually nature controls our rhythms, then give us a call now, 08459 or email me chris at nakedscientist.com. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Kat. And if you'd like to ask us any questions about the body clock, now's the time to call 08459252000. And on the line with us, he was going to be here in person, but he's got a bad back, unfortunately, the Professor of Molecular Neuroscience at Imperial College, and that's Russell Foster. Good evening, Russell. Hello, Chris. Nice to talk to you again. Thank you for agreeing to do it, despite being totally overloaded on painkillers this evening. <laughs> I'm sorry if my performance is less than, than Chris. <laughs> I'm rattling with drugs, am I? <laughs> but um, tell us, Russell, uh, the body clock is a real entity. Oh, yes. It, it, I mean, what's extraordinary about body clocks um, is that you can be a single-celled organism or indeed some forms of bacteria all the way up to complex organisms such as ourselves or indeed Carlisle's reindeer that we'll, uh, we'll, that we'll hear about later on. And all of us have this capacity uh, to generate a day within. Um, and what this clock does is fine-tune physiology and behavior to the varying demands of activity, activity and rest, um, which is to a large extent, dictated by the light-dark cycle. Where actually is the body clock in the body? Well, it varies depending upon um, a whole bunch of different organisms. I mean, in, in, in humans, the master pacemaker is in a structure in the base of the brain, uh, in an area called the hypothalamus, uh, called the suprachiasmatic nuclei. It's two sm- small nuclei, around about 20,000 cells, and we know that this is the, the, the major pacemaker. Um, and these cells provide a sort of signal from which the rest of the body takes its time cue. Now, you can actually take the whole of the SCN out from a mouse and stick it in a dish, and you can actually see rhythms, uh, 24-hour rhythms in activity in in, in isolation from the rest of the brain. How are they driven, those rhythms? Well, that's what's so fascinating, because you can take a single cell out, and you can still see 24-hour rhythms in electrical activity. And what that tells you is that the clock is not the product of cell-cell interaction, 
but it must reside within mechanisms within the cell, the molecular machinery of the cell. And we now know that there's about 12 or 14 genes and their associated proteins which generate this molecular oscillation. And, and, and in essence, it's a, a bit like a negative feedback uh, loop. You have a gene which produces a message. The message is then translated in the cytoplasm of the cell. And that protein then travels into the nucleus and actually turns off its own gene. So you have this cycle of protein production and protein degeneration, and that takes around about 24 hours. And, and that's the basis of the clock. And how is that signal transmitted to the rest of the body so that the cells around the rest of the body are, are kept in sync? Well, we used to think that the only bit of the, the body that could generate this 24-hour rhythm was the master pacemaker, this superchiasmatic nuclei. But we now know that almost every cell in the body is capable of producing a 24-hour molecular oscillation. And so our idea of, of circadian organization has changed enormously. We used to think that the SCN would drive rhythms in the rest of the body. Now we think that there are rhythms in essentially every tissue. What the SCN is uh, doing is coordinating those rhythms. So it's not driving them, but it's providing them with a reference point from which they can take a cue and so that the whole of the sort of the symphony of, of, of body physiology is, is, is properly coordinated. And in fact, people have referred to the SCN as the conductor of the circadian orchestra. And what sets that clock in the first place? The clock, of course, would be of no use unless internal time was set to local time. And a classic mismatch between biological clock time and local time will be jet lag. If one flew from Cambridge to New York, you'd feel ghastly for a few days, and then eventually you'd lock onto New York time. And the primary mechanism whereby the clock is locked onto local time is exposure to the light-dark cycle. We've had an email, um, a question in from Connie in Godmanchester, and she says she doesn't believe that jet lag is real. She thinks it's all in the sufferer's head because she's never suffered from it, even though she's been on long-haul flights. I mean, is this the case, or really are people susceptible to jet lag? Oh, yes, but, there's, but there are, there's a lot of individual variation. When you're, when you're younger, um, below 30, you are much more resilient to having your clock pushed uh, around. So, for example, night shift workers um, are much better able to cope, cope when they're young than when they're old. I, after around about 30. Um, and, and the interesting thing about night shift workers, going back to the light-dark cycle, is that even if you've been on the night shift for 20 years or so, your body clock does not shift with the demands of working at night. It's still locked onto the local time environment because of exposure to the local light-dark cycle. So what night shift workers have to do is essentially override the body clock, telling them to go to sleep at night and, and, and try and work. And that's why, of course, the accident rate is much higher on the night shift than compared to the day shift. And also, um, a, a number of diseases um, are now being correlated with night shift work. Cardiovascular disease in some night shift workers can be as much as 40% higher than their equivalent day shift workers. That's a perfect place to introduce our next guest, who's Karl-Arne Stocken from the University of Tromsø in, in Norway. Good evening, Karl-Arne. Oh, hi. Uh, because one thing you've been looking at is how animals uh, have to respond to the fact that at very high latitudes, not far north from where you are actually, uh, which, where there is a, a midnight sun and then for half the year there is no sun. Tell us about that. Yes, we wanted to challenge uh, a very important aspect of biological clock timing by looking at animals that periodically, for large periods each year, do not uh, receive any light-dark information. And that happens at the uh, very high latitudes for most of the winter and during the midnight sun season or the summer. So 
that's what we uh, set out to uh, to investigate reindeer living in these regions. How do these reindeer actually shut off their clock? Because Russell's saying you've got light and dark, and this entrains this particular conductor in a certain part of your brain, the conductor of your circadian orchestra, and it tells it to tell the rest of the body this is when you're on, this is when you're off. How do these animals get round the fact that there's no day-night cycle like that? Well, you were talking about the, uh, the clock of the reindeer. Really, that's the next chapter of our uh, research. Uh, we have been looking at what the animal is doing and how they are organizing their uh, time uh, behavior uh, by fitting them with uh, data loggers that can pick up their uh, locomotor activity or activity around the clock for uh, one whole year. And so what, when they're not moving, they're asleep? Uh, is that what you're assuming? Yes, when they are when they are quiet and lay down and, uh, you know, these are ruminating animals, so they have to stay quiet for a long period each day uh, to ruminate. But what happened was that they, we didn't find any well-defined daily rhythmicity for those times of the year when there is no light-dark cycle. And actually, for those animals living even at the very high latitude of uh, Spitsbergen or Svalbard at 78 degrees north, they even showed very little daily rhythmicity when there was a very fo- strong light-dark cycle as if they didn't pay any attention to, to the uh, driving force of the clocks. Over what time must this have evolved, though? Because up until not so long ago, reindeer were living in France in the Dordogne when it was much, much colder, weren't they? Yes, that's right. Um, we don't know, actually, when, when reindeer moved in to, uh, to these high la- uh, Arctic latitudes, but we can say that uh, during the last 10,000 years, they've been around. And as you know, they... All animals evolved at much lower latitudes, so they brought with them their uh, circadian clocks and circadian machinery when moving north around 10,000 years ago. So um, presumably that's when the, uh, the battle started between the, uh, the circadian machinery uh, within, without the need for having it. Carlana, I've got an email here from Debbie, uh, and I, she actually wrote to me a little while ago, but I kept this back because I knew you were coming on the programme. Um, she says, Hello, my name's Debbie, and I'm a cancer biology graduate student in a mouse genetics lab at Stanford University. That's in the US, of course. I like to listen to your podcast, and I, I often spend long hours in the tissue culture room dealing with my mouse embryonic stem cells. My friends and I have a question for you. A week or two ago, I listened to a podcast in which you were talking about biorhythms, in other words, the circadian clock, and you talked about how some animals can tell the seasons, and therefore when it's time to mate and they do that using light we want to know how our mice which are kept in the temperature controlled light controlled environment know how to breed less in winter even though the number of hours of light and dark are the same all year round what do you think of that well i'm probably not able to uh, to answer that but uh, if they are living under conditions where there is a constant 12 hour light 12 hour darkness there must be some other uh, um, inputs to uh, to their do these animals really show an annual cycle in breeding? I wonder if it really might get slightly more chilly if they can detect slight changes in temperature. It depends how well um, their uh, their mouse house is working. Well, that could be they're picking up subtle signals uh, because if they are uh, exposed to a very constant light-dark cycle, uh, they shouldn't receive any uh, information telling them what time of year it is. OK, well, thank you very much, Carl Hang on the line, just in case we have any specific questions for you. It is The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Cat, and we're talking about the body clock. Just return very briefly uh, to Russell Foster, who's uh, for the Professor of Molecular Neuroscience at Imperial. Russell, yep. uh, there's a quick question here which is actually coming from Japan. Uh, it's from Mickey, and Mickey says, I'm listening to your show in Kyoto, Japan. I like it very much, even though I sometimes don't understand what you're talking about because I'm, <laughs> it's poor, my English is quite poor. I've got a question for you. Why do I feel happier on a sunny day, even if I don't 
have to go out on that day? Does the sunshine have some kind of magical power of cheering us up? That's a really interesting question. And, of course, we thought before, well, this is sort of just some sort of um, uh, feeling which has no real basis in physiology. But there's now an increasing understanding that um, increased amounts of light genuinely do increase our alertness and our performance and our sense of well-being. And this has been quantitated really very nicely in a, in a, in a, in a bunch of recent studies. And it's, it, we're not clear of the mechanism, but it has been associated with the release of serotonin. There is some evidence suggesting... This is a feel-good chemical, isn't it? Exactly, that, that light can in, in, increase the amount of serotonin within the brain. And so, as you say, the feel-good chemical will be in higher concentrations when it's light, and that may be the explanation, and it's a really interesting area of research. We're, we're ha we happen to be working on that, in fact, at the moment. Thanks, Russell. Let's have a quick chat to Reid, who's in Kings Lynn. Hello, Reid. Hello, buddy. What can we do for you? Uh, I've got a problem. Well, it's not a problem. It's, uh, I've been working nights for the last 25 years. Yeah. Yeah, permanent nights. Mm. Yeah. I've retired in November. Yes. But my body clock's still on night, so I'm um, up all night and, <laughs> and sleep during the day. John in Bletchy yeah, says exactly the same. He says his body clock's in reverse, too. He sleeps all through the day and stays awake at night. Is there anything he can do to reverse this? Let's ask Russell. Russell, what do you think? Yeah, I think that the, 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 the best treatment for this would be to try and expose yourself to light early in the morning. Um, and, and evidence suggests that light exposure, high light exposure, between 5 a.m. and 8 a.m., can advance the body clock and lock it on to local time. Now, clearly, um, it, there may not be much light around between 5 a.m. and 8 a.m., particularly during the winter months. So you may want to think about um, trying to get one of these light boxes. They're not cheap. They're about 120, 130 quid. Um, but the data now emerging is pretty convincing that these light boxes, and this particularly early morning light, can be very effective at consolidating the sleep-wake rhythm. And, and, it's, and it's a situation analogous to individuals with seasonal affective disorder, where there's been a great deal of research recently showing that these light boxes, particularly at that time, are very effective. Reid, does that, does that kind of set you right? Yep, thanks very much. Do you want a quick go at the quiz? No thanks, buddy. All right then, thanks for joining us on the programme. Cheers, bye. Right, our other guest this week is Alex Webb, who is from Cambridge University. Good evening, Alex. Thanks for coming in. Good evening. It turns out that it's not just animals that we've been talking about, including us, that have body clocks. Plants do too. That's right. In fact, body clocks were first identified in plants in 1729 uh, by um, a scientist who was uh, also an astronomer, and he, he was looking at uh, mimosa plants, and he took them down into his wine cellar, and he kept as them in do. as you do. Well, he was French, and, <laughs> and uh, he looked at them. And if you know mimosa plants, they actually close their leaves up every night and open them up in the day. And he found that they kept doing this rhythm even in constant dark. And this was the first proof of an internal clock in any organism uh, that was made. And is the plant body clock similar to the mammalian body clock? We heard Russell describe how animal body clocks work. Do plants do it in the same way? Uh, in, in many ways, it is rather similar. The mechanism is sort of similar, but the actual components, if you like, the clockwork, are, are different. And this is because clocks have evolved at least four times. And we don't know when they evolved or uh, when, um, when the divergence occurred between plants and animals so much in, in terms of clocks. But it looks like plants developed their own clock. Uh, but, so the system is somewhat similar, but there isn't a core sort of master clock that Russell was talking about in the brain. What we think is that every cell in the plant has a clock and it's able to respond to light signals itself. It's quite similar to algae, isn't it? Because if you look at individual algae, they're single-celled organisms and they can have their own clock. So I guess a plant is essentially a big accumulation of those 
and so it's not surprising that they all have their individual clocks and if they're entrained by sunlight that they're going to be in synchrony. I think the important point is the entrainment by sunlight. Uh, in plants, every cell needs to respond to light, at least the leaves, um, and, and has the capacity to sense light, whereas you think of the cells in our bodies which are buried away. Then they need some kind of master oscillator which is entrained by the light signals through the eye. What's the, what's the point of the cells being able to tell whether it's day or night, though? Because presumably if there's sun, they can do what they need to do. If there's not, they don't. Well, that's been the huge question, and we think it's some kind of anticipation. We think there's some advantage of being able to anticipate when it's dawn. Um, in plants, uh, we found out just recently that having a clock makes plants grow quite, uh, twice as big, and it makes them uh, photosynthesize more. And there's another reason to have a clock, and this is to act as an internal timekeeper, which allows you to measure the change in day length, and so is very important, for example, in controlling flowering. How do people actually know that the, how these clocks work in plants? What are the experiments they do to work it out? A very simple experiment is you can actually measure leaves moving up and down using imaging cameras. Um, so you can watch the leaves move up and down for a 24-hour rhythm, and in fact we make movies which look just like the plants are flying. And then you can do more complex experiments. You can measure the amount of carbon dioxide being taken up by the plant, which shows you the 24-hour rhythms of photosynthesis. Or in our case, we take genes from jellyfish, uh, which uh, emit light when they bind calcium. And this allows us to measure 24-hour uh, rhythms of calcium within the cells. And, uh, and then the plants literally glow in the dark when calcium is high. And if you can actually unlock the secret of how the body clock works in a plant, will this actually translate into better plants and bigger plants and therefore better agriculture? We hope so. Um, my own group has just started uh, working with the National Institute of Agricultural Botany, which is up on uh, Huntington Road in Cambridge. And uh, what we're looking at there is we're looking to, um, to see if there's a natural variation in the clock genes in barley because we think this gives an opportunity perhaps to make uh, spread crops further north and also to improve them. And in fact, just recently, last year, some workers in Norwich demonstrated that a, a very important um, a change in barley, which was required for making the spring crop that we now see everywhere, spring barley, was a mutation in a gene which we believe to be part of the circadian clock. So when we take that information and we take the information that clocks make plants twice as big, we've suddenly found a huge new genetic resource for the improvement of crops. And if we take plants on space journeys to other planets, other worlds that have a different orbital period and a different rotational period to the Earth, they're not going to grow as well then? No, in fact, some of the experiments we did, we grew plants on, in a Martian-like um, period, which is a total day length of 21 hours, which is because Mars spins a little bit faster than Earth, and we found that plants grow half the size. And so one of the things we found is that if you go to Mars, you've got to keep the timing of Earth, otherwise your plants will be half the size, and then I guess the astronauts would starve. That's Alex Webb from Plant Sciences in Cambridge. It's the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Cat. If you have any quick questions for us, 08459 25 2000. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. is the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Cat, and we're talking this evening about the body clock, we're talking about longevity, and we're talking about survival now, because every year at Cambridge University, the Darwin Lectures are a series of lectures based on a certain theme. This year it's all about survival in various capacities, and Anna Lacey has been to talk to Professor Cynthia Kenyon from the University of California in San Francisco about how to cheat time and survive longer. People used to think that you just wear out like an old car, but I actually started to question that because if you look in nature, what you find is that different animals have really different lifespans. So for example, a rat lives three years, but a squirrel can live 25 years. And so these animals differ from one another by their genes. So that tells you right off the bat that genes control aging. So you managed to make 
sea elegans, which is a small worm, live six times as long. I mean, how did you manage to do that? The idea is that if there are genes that control aging, then if you change those genes, maybe an animal will be able to live longer. So what we found then is that if we change this one gene in such a way that it doesn't, didn't work quite as well as normal, we double the lifespan of the animals. So how does making something work less well make you live longer? Well, it's surprising, isn't it? You would think that the body would be completely geared up for long life. But here we have kind of a grim reaper gene in the little worms and in all these other animals. In other words, this is a gene whose normal function causes you to, to die before you otherwise would. So it's a very big surprise that there would be genes whose function were to speed up aging. But surely there must be some cost to this youthfulness. Well, people think that, but if you think about it, in evolution, you know, um, our primitive ancestors in evolution probably only lived about as long as C. elegans lived, these little worms. And um, now we live a thousand times as long, and that's because of changes in the genes. So if every time you changed a gene in such a way that lifespan was increased, there was some horrible penalty to pay, it's impossible that we would be as talented as we are. And in the case of these worms, you can cause the worms to live twice as long with no effect on reproduction at all and no obvious effect on movement. They're very healthy. So there doesn't seem to have to be an obvious trade-off. The fact that humans are already living a lot longer than some of our ancestors, do you think that we've perhaps reached the maximum mm -hmm. that we might be able to extend our life? It's possible. We don't know. It's difficult to find out. You can't just change the genes. And even if you could, it takes 200 years to find out. So it, it's a very difficult proposition in humans. Um, on the other hand, it's not clear to me that, there, that we've reached the maximal limit. I mean, it seems to me that most organisms they evolved to have a life strategy that works for them. And in the case of humans, we teach each other, we organize, we control resources, we learn. So all that takes a lot of time. And even then, people don't die right after they have their children. In fact, they live even longer than they would need to live just to get the kids out of the house. Elderly people in a society can have value. They can help to take care of the grandchildren, for example, or they can help remember things that would be very valuable to the tribe. But so you can ask, well, if we, if we can live this long, why don't we live longer? And I think, you know, do you really need the great-grandparents around, you know, if you have the grandparents to remember important things? But it doesn't seem to me that that means that we've reached the limit. We might have, because we don't know. But I don't really see any reason. After all, the germline, the sperm and egg lineage, is immortal. Compared to immortality, even, um, even a thousand years pales in comparison. My grandparents are absolutely great, so I'm pleased to have them around. That was Anna Lacey talking to Cynthia Kenyon from the University of California, San Francisco, about her Darwin lecture this year on surviving longer and delaying the ravages of time. We've got a quick question in here from Linda Edwards in Norwich, and she wants to ask Russell. She says that she's one of these owls. She finds it easier to be up until 1am rather than get up at 7 in the morning. She feels lively in the evening, rubbish the rest of the day. Why are some people larks and why are some people owls? Russell, what do you reckon? Some great new um, evidence on that. And we were talking about those clock genes earlier, perhaps 12 to 14 of them that we understand. And subtle changes in those genes, um, polymorphisms in those genes, have been associated with either being a morning-type person or an evening-type person. So you have got an excuse for being late for work, Russell? Well, yes. In, in fact, there's a lovely quote, which is, um, uh, through their genes, our parents are still telling us what time to go to bed. <laughs> Talking of getting up and going to bed, Alan, um, so Alan's in Cambridge, and he says he can sit there before he goes to sleep and say, I want to wake up at 6am, and at 6am the next day, he'll wake up on the dot. He's never used an alarm clock. Does this sound likely, Russell? 
Um, possibly, yes, because it's likely that the clock could be used as an internally consulted clock. We know many animals can do this. Bees will visit certain flowers at very specific times of the day. It's almost like an, a sort of a, an event uh, calendar. And so it, it's likely that we humans could be like a bee and, and time different uh, events to specific times of the day. I've got one very, very quick one, which if you can do this in about 30 seconds. Okay. Um, this guy, it's Michael Gray, he's, he's over in the state in Jacksonville, Florida, and he says, um, I've noticed that if I have dreams, they seem like they last for a very long time, but then when I wake up, only a minute or two has passed. How do you account for that? Oh, this is, this is a, I, I can't do this in 30 seconds really uh, well, but um, our perception of time, the passage of time, changes enormously depending upon how much information we're processing. So if you're pro processing lots and lots of information, um, then time will appear to go faster. Okay, well, I think we've probably run out of time there, uh, Russell, but, but thank you very much for helping us out this evening. Great pleasure. That's it, pretty much. We are out of time. It has been The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Cat. Next week, we're checking out Extinction, Species Survival and Wiping Out Invasive Animals. It's a sort of environmental special. And here on the show will be Henry Nichols, who's written a fantastic book called Lonesome George, and Dr David Aldridge from the Zoology Department at Cambridge University. Now, uh, if you're around in Cambridge on Saturday next week, then you should come along to the Cambridge Science Festival. Science on Saturday will be there as The Naked Scientist doing a live two-hour radio special. But if you fancy ch coming along, you can also check out our other guests this evening. Alex Webb, uh, who joined us this evening to talk about plants. He's going to be there, Alex. Yep, I will, and I hope you all come. You can come pollinate his flower. You <laughs> certainly can. <laughs> Get some free sweeps. <laughs> but thank you very much to everyone who joined in this evening. Herbert Huppert for doing a wonderful kitchen science. To Alex Webb, who you heard there from Plant Sciences in Cambridge. Carl Arna Stocken from the University of Tromsen in Norway. And uh, also Russell Foster from Imperial College. Have a great week. Send us your questions on email in the meantime, and we'll see you next week. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com.